Welcome. Good morning. I'm Amy Wenslow, and we host these calls as a, a give to everyone in the inventor and entrepreneurial world that are building businesses and looking to move a consumer product forward. So my background is as a product developer, sales management, and marketing for consumer products for large volume sales. So I'm not an attorney. Um, I do speak for the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office every, every once in a while um, on commercialization, but I'm not an attorney. So anything that borders on a legal question, you'll hear me say, you know, you need to consult with your attorney about that. But just so we're clear, the perspective is how do you develop something that's actually going to sell? I was in a conversation on the 13th, so that would have been Wednesday of last week, with a client of ours. We were talking about this this idea of what is good enough with a prototype. How complex should it be? And what do you do to overcome the doubts that what you've done is good enough? And how do you decide what level of prototype to do based on your project and based on what you're trying to create? So there's a couple sides to this question, like the email that went out this morning said. First, there's the factual considerations of the project. And those are, are there's about five, maybe six of them. Uh, and the considerations are, number one, the purpose of the prototype. Is this a working prototype for you to just work out some logistics? Or is it something you're showing to investors? Or is it for the purpose of your patent paperwork? Um, is it to show a factory? Or is it the prototype that a factory has produced for you to demonstrate their ability and their capability? So the second one is, what is the budget for a full-blown version of your product? Meaning the final um, tooling is in place and they've done a final version of it. You're in production run or you're about to go to production run. So you want to look at what's the budget have to be to get to that type of um, sample for you. Some projects that we have been around have a lot of tooling costs. One of our clients, um, their tooling alone was going to be $90,000. So I recommended that they do a scale model version of the product so that we could check out some of the, the sizing and the spacing and the relationship between parts. And when he did that, um, we discovered a mistake from his product designer that would have cost him probably about mm, $25,000 to fix. And we were able to catch it with a scale model. So sometimes the scale model is a great way to go, particularly if it's something that's going to involve tooling costs. Um, the fourth piece here is complexity of producing the actual product. Um, we have a client that is doing an electronics piece, and that has, you know, temperature regulators and interior um, electronics that needed to be engineered and the housing of those. So it's pretty complex. And when you're looking at a really complex item, you might build a working prototype 
knowing that when you go into what's called design for manufacturing or DFM, that the entire form of the product is going to shrink and get smaller and be um, a lot more concise, okay? So um, the last consideration really is who will it be shown to and are they able to visualize things or not? So sometimes when you're working with investors, they're not very good at visualizing, you know, well, here's what you're seeing, but it's going to also have this or it's going to look like that. So if it's a prototype that's for investors to look at, then you may have to go to a higher degree of refinement than you would if it's to just demonstrate a proof of concept for yourself, okay? So it's really important to keep in mind that the people that are looking at it um, will have varying degrees of ability to visualize what you're talking about. I'm really good at looking at what is, you know, the duct-taped collage version of something and seeing its final form. That's just a strength of mine. There are a lot of investors that don't have that strength, so you would want to find ways to demonstrate it more concretely for them than you would for somebody like me. Um, the same thing if you're doing your first prototype, say it's a, a cut and sew kind of project where you're cutting some fabric, you're stitching it together, that you can kind of do a homemade version of it and get it pretty close um, and then make your patterns from that. If you are doing a product that requires tooling, though, that's when you're going to get into some of the, the costs and you're going to be looking at should you do a scale model, like I mentioned earlier. So um, just a, so a quick segue here. When you're doing prototype, like the email said and I mentioned earlier, there are those factual considerations. Then there's a whole host of energetic considerations is kind of the way I think about them. And it really comes down to what is the level of sample or prototype that's going to give you a sense of confidence in what you're talking about, that you've thought it through or that the product has been thought through, even if it's by a product designer. So a prototype that is, quote, good enough, allows you to be reasonably confident that the product is thought out, okay? This, this other piece in here is it lets you see the form of the product and move it around in space. I think that when you're going to prototyping, that's a very important piece because it moves it out of concept for you and into actual form in the world. And it lets people start to participate with you and start to contribute into the project. Um, an energetically good enough sample also explains the concept. So you can see it, you can understand what's happening with it, and you can see that some different things may have been explored. So one last piece about the energetic consideration is I want everybody that's hearing this to understand that there comes a moment where you trust that you're always going to be iterating, you're always going to be doing the next version 
or um, you're going to launch a next product that is going to have the improvement. It's very tempting for us creative folks to get stuck in this thing of endlessly um, refining the product, endlessly, endlessly kind of cycling around and never launching it, okay? It's really important to refine it enough and then know that it's time to launch and that you'll you'll catch the the changes in the next version or in a line extension. So it's it's this moment of knowing that it's good enough and being able to back away when the um a lot of painters, classical painters talk about this and they they know that there can be a tendency to do what's called overworking a canvas. And that's um, getting stuck in this refining to the nth degree instead of letting the piece, in this case a painting, go on to have the next thing happen with it, which is for somebody to own it and love it and and move it out into the world. It's the same thing when you're creating a product. Um, there have been many times where I was working on a design and I could see that there was maybe this little tweak or that little piece that I could change, but it wasn't going to increase the, the value of the piece enough or give enough cost savings or mean anything to anybody else. Not enough for me to go back into the tooling or, or back into the design process and make that edit. Um, and it's a judgment call because I'm perfectionist. So um, I have to always keep in mind, and I'd encourage all of you, to trust that you'll iterate. Okay, Your prototype is a prototype. It's not the end product. So don't get fixated on it being absolutely perfection, okay? It needs to be good enough for you to feel confident about your concept, confident about the form that it's taking on, and the features it's delivering to the market, okay? So with that, I'm going to um, open up the lines for questions. I see we've got some other people that have joined us, and um, I'm happy to run through some of the factual considerations of prototypes and how to decide what's good enough if you need me to review that. So if you're on the phone line and you have a question, I want you to press star 2 to raise your hand. And if you're on the webcast, you can just type it in the uh, Q&A box and that'll come across. So let me go check the webcast and see if we have questions there. Okay, great. Oh, people are saying hi. Hello. Hello. It looks like we have Kathy on the webcast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for the compliment. I appreciate that. I see we've got just a couple of questions that popped through. Uh, this first one is from Massachusetts, I think. Uh, number ends in 2663. Hi Hello. there. Did you have a question? Hi, hi, Amy. It's Satara from Boston. Um, I actually, because I got on the call a little late, I was wondering if you are scoping this as well so that I can catch the replay or um, I don't really want to take up the time with you running through what I may have missed. Got it. I did not do a periscope today because uh, 
it, we're getting ready to leave out of town for, um, actually this is kind of a cool announcement. Um, I'm meeting with the business development team with one of the guys from Shark Tank this week. Oh. So I did do a periscope because today is a fast-paced day. Um, okay. So let me just, I'll just run through it real quick for you. So on the factual side of what prototype level is good enough for your project, you want to look at the purpose of the prototype. Is it a proof of concept? Um, is it to show a factory? What, like, what are you expecting it to do? Is it to check out dimensions, make sure those work? So there's purpose of prototype. Um, you want to look at the budget for doing a full-blown version. Sometimes if it's a low-cost item, um, you may just want to have the entire really refined prototype done. If it's something like a new blender or a new coffee machine or something with electronics, the version of the prototype can get really expensive if you're going to re-engineer a bunch of things. So consider the budget. And, and by the way, the timeline, too. I didn't mention that first. Um, and that speaks also to the third thing, which is complexity of producing it. Um, if the complexity is, is pretty high and it's going to take you a long time to produce a full-blown prototype, you might um, do a lower-end prototype, kind of a little more collaged together, um, or prototype the parts that are different than what's in the marketplace so that you can see those and then work backwards from there. Um, and the fourth thing is consider if a scale model is helpful. And I gave the example of a client of ours who had a $90,000 tooling fee that he was going to have to pay for the full product. And instead of jumping straight to that, we went to um, another scale model, 3D printed, so that we could check out some of the proportions and the way some pieces were fitting together. And we discovered a very big problem that, that saved him about $25,000 to discover in that 3D model stage, where we did, um, I think it was one-tenth scale because it was a large item. Um, so always consider whether a scale model is helpful if your thing is big. And then the last consideration is always to think of who is this going to be shown to and are they able to visualize things and understand them. Um, investors sometimes can and sometimes can't. So most investors, if, you, if you're doing something to show to an investor, it's good to do as much as you can to show a fairly refined version of the product, or if you have a rough version, you want to have some color samples with it or something like that so that they can understand what it is you're doing a little bit better. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. Actually, that, sure. that helps me um, because I've actually, I went ahead and had uh, my product 3D printed. And a couple of weeks ago, I was trying to get into a big um, small business incubator that's based out of Boston. And the judges that I was presenting my pitch to, um, the feedback that I had gotten from two of them, which I thought was interesting because I, I was very clear that this was just a 3D printed um, product, and it wasn't the actual product, but they had actually said that because I wasn't wearing it, 
that they felt that I might have thought that my product wasn't fashionable enough. And so <laughs> to get that feedback, it, it surprised me because I was very clear that this was just a 3D print. It wasn't the actual um, uh, production-ready prototype. This I, I needed to be able to um, get there to be able to be a part of this competition, I needed to get to the next place, which would have been to get the molding done and to have the product um, ready for production. So it just it, it kind of threw me off a little bit, to be honest. Um, so that's why I just wanted to sort of figure out, you know, is my 3D? I guess it. I guess it just depends on different circumstances because, you know, maybe my 3D printing wasn't enough for them to think that I was market ready, like I, I just thought that at least I took the step to, to bring it further. Uh -huh. I thought that would have been an advantage for me, but it, it seemed like it was a bit of a disadvantage. Well, they defaulted to what they could see, mm -hmm. and um, they discounted your words. They're, they're highly visually oriented, mm -hmm. and... There are different levels of 3D printing even. There's different refinement, different materials. Um, you can paint the model and, you know, right. so depending on what what category of product was it? So it's a juvenile product. Well, it's actually um, teething. It's jewelry for moms but for a teething baby. So it's similar to, I don't know if you've ever heard of Chubies. Like they're one of the ones that are pretty, they're my competitor and they're pretty popular. So it's like Chubies and Smart Mom Jewelry. And so I had actually had a – I have a bracelet, a rattle, and um, a necklace with a pendant. Uh -huh. And I actually have the physical 3D printed product. And it's very rough. I mean, it's not it's not the silicone – it's not the medical grade silicone that I'm going to use. However, I thought that that was enough for them to be able to touch the product, for them to be able to see it. Um, and I just was a little baffled by the fact that they – noted that I didn't wear it, although I, because I wear a lot of jewelry. I mean, I'm a mom of seven. I have a lot. I do wear a lot of jewelry. But I wasn't able to wear that because it wasn't the actual product, which kind of, you know, it just, it baffled me a little bit because I was very clear. You know, they touched it. They, they it seemed like they understood the concept. Um, but to get that feedback, it was, it was a little weird for me. Well, sometimes... So Sometimes people don't understand the language of what is 3D printing. Okay. So if okay. you if you said, oh, this is just a 3D printed piece, they don't understand mm -hmm. the ramifications of that. So this is okay. a valuable point for everybody who's listening. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, it's always important to remember the viewpoint of your audience. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do they understand the language that you're using and and what it implies, or is it better to say like, the way you could address that is this is an early sample mm, okay. that was produced with a different technology, so it actually doesn't allow me to wear it yet because the material will be different. This okay. is, and then you have a sample of the material that it's going to be. Versus what it is. Okay. And, Thank and you. you can That's talk about right because then see this this is like I was talking about if you are showing to investors 
and they're not good at visualizing, you want to have maybe one of the rough pieces and then color samples of the, the real one or something like that that completes the story. Okay. Okay. And um, I'm reminded of a pitch contest that I was helping um, with. We were coaching very high-tech innovations. It was for the Port of Los Angeles. It was for their um, clean technology contest. And, I mean, there was funding in the room that was kind of crazy, like VPs of banks were mm -hmm. people listening to pitches. And the company that ultimately won was three PhD guys, right, three doctors of, like, physics and chemical engineering and crazy technology doing low-temperature plasma ignition systems for diesel engines that increase the fuel economy and, you know, like that, right? And they were talking so technically in the first presentation that I heard, and my coaching to them afterwards was, you have to tell me in layman's terms what this is going to do. And they went, what do you mean? I said, look, just because somebody's not technical doesn't mean they can't write you a check and that they that they don't understand business opportunities. So they might not understand your techno speak, but they understand business opportunity, right? So you were kind of in that moment. So I, I'm really impressed with the company that I was coaching for that because the doctorate uh, the PhD guy who was giving the presentation, the next time I heard it, he looked at me and he said, well, what our system does is it allows a truck to go from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara with literally 60% of the fuel be that he needed before. You know, like he gave me a real example. So that's kind of what you need to do too, okay? Um, so let's see. I see. So does that make sense? I don't. I I got disconnected. So, ah. so so always do. First off, I recorded this and it'll be up on the blog. Um, so check our blog, which is products2profits.com/blog. And for everybody who's listening to this, if you've missed a call or you have questions, I put a ton of content over on our blog. And frequently, our blog articles have snippets of these call recordings. So just a little FYI for everybody. Um, but you want to do as much as you can de to demonstrate and to overcome that question mark before the question comes up. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you admit, you know, this is an early stage model of the final product. Yeah. It's allowing, this model is allowing us to see the relationship between these two parts. This is the material that it will be and that we know it can be produced in. And then they go, oh, okay. okay. Do you see how that's a different conversation then? Yes, I do. Yeah. So it's it's in how you present it as well, okay? Okay. Thank you, Amy. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm going to mute your line for your privacy. And then our next question, phone number ends in 6678. Hello? Ah, it's Melissa, right? <laughs> Hi, Amy. Hi there. What's your question Hi. today? Oh, I think you covered my question really in the last answer with uh, your long 
version there. Um, but so I was going to ask you a couple other quick things. Is there anything on the blog or website on licensing? Yeah, there is. Which way of licensing? You licensing somebody else's thing or them licensing yours? Well, it has to do with I'm not I, raising capital to to prototype all four other products that in my line. You know, I have rendering of them. Uh huh. Um, but um, I mean, they can see the Sphinx, and uh, but I'd really love to find someone who might license the whole line since it's all you know the Sphinx in different in different forms for different right. reasons. You know. So just trying to, yeah. Well, yes, the full body one, the kids one, the pregnant women one, you know, all that um, uh-huh. kind of thing. But I'm not sure that I want to go out and prototype all of them. Got it. So, so um, licensing it to it, swimways or best ways or you know, aqua leisure or something. Right. So it's going to come down to how you present and what's the best form for that. Um, the renderings will be helpful. You know, showing the current product is also going to be helpful um, because that way they can see the quality and they can kind of catch the vision. Right. So I was just wondering, you have something about that on your blog or your website? Um, I'm not sure if there's something that goes into the scope of a presentation for licensing. Um, we okay. have some things in licensing for sure, more the the how it works. Okay. For for your particular product, if you can show the renderings with the human that is that it's meant for, you know, like so they can see scale and things, that would be helpful. Oh, okay. I didn't know uh, about that. Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise the mo- the versions don't look that different unless you probably, you know, what I mean, I know they do, but you want to try and put them in scale to the human being. Okay. Um, so for everybody who's listening to this, whenever you have computer renderings and you are intimately involved with your product, you've been touching it forever, all those things, you kind of understand when you look at the drawings how big the thing is. But unless there is something contextually next to it, when you look at drawings, if even if they have dimensions, it's easy to lose how big that thing really is. But if you put it next to even, you know, a wireframe person, meaning, you know, kind of a skeleton, you see them all the time, like these wireframe sort of quasi-tron-looking things representing a human, it, it at least shows you, like, where it's supposed to be used or what part of the body or how big that. So I think you should do something like that in your presentation. No, that's really helpful, especially for the pregnant women version to show um, different size bellies being able to lay down on their stomach, you know, yeah. using it. So, yeah, and you want to talk about some of the numbers, the market size of each of the segments, you know, what it represents, right? how many right. are in the U.S. or whatever market they, that person you're trying to license to is approaching. So if they're international, you talk international. If it's U.S., you talk U.S. numbers. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And yep. and you should probably have like one page per product, maybe two. Something okay. like that. Yeah. So it's not it's yeah. not huge. Um, 
And then I would look at the cycle of when they're debuting products. And for your Great. product, you know, it's probably going to take them nine months. Um, yeah, it's like totally. August August for a June scenario. So Right. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, this is a good time to be hitting it. Yeah, okay. right now is for Christmas, you know. So, um, yeah, so the other products are real beachy. You know, they're not they're not real. The Sphinx is the only one that's pretty much year-round um, here, anyway, right. in the U.S. It could be year-round any other country, but, um, yeah, but the other ones definitely are more seasonal. Um, right. Yeah. You always want to also consider, you know, are you looking for an exclusive deal? Are you looking for non-exclusive? And if it's a non-exclusive deal, or even if it is exclusive, is it exclusive to U.S. Is it, you know, is it global? Like, what is that? And do you have the ability to impact the sales? Because that affects your check. Sure. Okay. Sure. So, can you make sales, or how's that going to work? Okay. And and be cautious with whenever for everybody who's ever considering licensing, read the fine print very, very, very clearly because if you license to say an infomercial company, a lot of times they have a clause in there that says that they're responsible for any lift in sales in any retail account too. Like pretty much anywhere. And that they get a percentage of that. So or so there's some of those pieces um it, it can just pay attention, okay? Right, right, okay. All right, yeah. thank you very much. Check your, check your blog. I think there are some things over there that, that will help you too, okay? Okay, great, thanks. Cool. I'm going to mute your line, Melissa, and then I'm going to go back to our Florida person. Um, 3717, our last four digits. Hi, Amy, it's Pam. Hey, Pam, what's your question today? Well, my question is, do you have any experience with Surf Expo? Is it a serious uh, buyer's um, trade show? Or, you know, I had thought about doing the show in Atlanta, but Surf Expo is sooner, and my product really fits in a lot of the categories of the buyers there. So I was just wondering what your thoughts were and experience with Surf Expo and, and it as a trade show. Yeah, um, I do know some some of the exhibitors there, and they've had a good show. Um, they've seen a lot of end consumers come through it, too. So, you know, it's kind of one of those mixed bag sort of shows. Um, and it's, it's of course, going to depend on, you know, can you have your product get noticed? next to all the things that are like the flashy, exciting stuff, like the new board models or some of those pieces. Um, right. And there's a lot of activity going on, which is the other thing. So it's, it's a pretty lively show, typically. Okay. <clears throat> so that kind of answers my question. It's more of a people go there to have fun for a good time and – it's not as serious. It wouldn't be as smart to invest in it as it would be to do Atlanta. Um, what, I don't know what the Atlanta show is. I don't know the demographics of it. Which one is it? 
Um, it's in um, January, the Atlanta Gift Show in in Atlanta, Georgia. I think you you have to sit and look at the demographics of the shows, you know, in the exhibitor packets on the website. Scour it, you know, check the hashtags from last year. How how active was the show on social media, um, and and make the decision that way of where do you think your product is going to fit best, and then always, you know, it's it's about what's the budget for doing the show, and um, you know, is it going to have return on investment is is always the question. And that's depending on who's there. So I would compare the two shows based on the audience and your fit of your product to them. You know? Okay. Like, <clears throat> yeah, but when you have a show that has a lot of splashy stuff with it, a lot of activity, it can be hard for some products that aren't directly related to that splashy activity um, to get noticed and uh-huh. to get much excitement. Right. Well, I thought so that because some of their, their – yeah, I thought they had categories like um, hotel and souvenir and stuff like that. That I mean, I know they have, like, the surfboards and the, and the uh, you know, skateboards and all that, but then I thought that they, they have, like, several other sections, like I said, souvenir – and then resort and gift, mm-hmm. and I just thought mm-hmm. maybe um, my product really fit into those, and then even swimwear, because my product's something you can use when you're wearing swimwear to, you know, hold your phone. So it, it seemed right. like there's so many of the different uses of my product were there. Right. I mean, that is that is true, and they do have different categories. So, you know, you would have to look at what booths are available on the show floor in the different sections. And are the ones that are available a good fit for you? Okay. You know, it comes down to floor plan, traffic pattern, budget. You know, it's it, take a look at it and, and check in about it. Um, it could be good for you. I, you know, I just, I what I know about the show is that, yes, We've talked to some of the exhibitors there. They've had a good show. Um, there's there's just a lot of activity with it. And that was from last year or the year before? You know, okay. I haven't looked at the plan for, for this year. Okay? Okay. Thank you, Amy. You're welcome. So I'm going to mute your line for your privacy. Does anybody have a last question or comment? Okay, well, with that, we are done for today. I'll keep you all posted how it goes with uh, the Shark Tank business development team. It looks like we'll be working on some of the Season 8 products, possibly. So, pretty exciting. Um, uh, What? Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, we have a a good relationship with them, and they they called and said, hey, we should talk about Season 8. So, I'm like, okay. Okay. so I will keep everybody posted and have a great week. Um, and I will talk to you in two weeks. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Bye. Amy. Bye, Amy. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.